can be opening up your Bibles to Psalm 1. We have a special treat this morning. Our own Andy Doyle will be bringing us the message. And for those of you who don't know Andy, Andy is uh, finishing up seminary at Gordon-Conwell. And he and his wife Shelley and family have been with us uh, for a year and a half. Yeah, a year and a half. And have been a, a real delight. Andy has uh, helped tremendously with our Alpha program. He's now leading Beta and has just been a uh, great brother to me as well. We meet regularly and pray and talk, and I receive counsel from him and try to give some back too, perhaps. Uh, and uh, he's just been a real blessing. Um, and we are looking forward to hearing from him this morning. Um, he's a man that God is raising up. And we are trusting God with him for God's purposes in and through his life, as well as he seeks to serve God's people. Uh, So, uh, and he's going to talk to us from Psalm 1, so let's welcome our brother up as he brings us God's word. (laughs) Ah, felt it. Good morning. If, uh, like my wife Shelley, you're wondering what someone like me is doing up here, then blame Paul. See, Paul has finally relented in allowing me to preach. Before Christmas, I came up to Paul and said, Paul, please let me preach. Please, please, please let me preach. And Paul said, well, I've just got one issue with that, Andy. I said, what's that? He goes, you're English. He goes, you talk funny. The English have, the English have bad teeth. And, and he said, I've seen American Idol, I've seen Simon Cowell, and I don't want you, up at the front in my church, just putting a boot in to Americans, like all you English like. <laughs> so I said, Paul, this is not how I preach. Please just give me a chance. He goes, well, show me a DVD of you preaching. So I had a preaching class. I showed Paul the DVD. And he goes, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and he gave me some feedback, and the feedback was, I look like a hula dancer. So I kept kind of... Separating the floor off as I was trying to make different points. That, that's true, Paul. Shame on you. <laughs> so I said, please, Paul, let me preach. Give me one more chance. So I finally sent him a, my final video from preaching class. And he looked at it. He said, I'm still not convinced you're ready yet. And I said, but Paul, I've, I've, even, I've stopped the silly gestures. I'm even practicing the sovereign grace pastor. Sovereign grace pastor, like, actions and stuff. I said, Paul, I've even, I've even practiced... Whispering about the gospel. <laughs> and, and if you've been in a Sovereign Grace Church, you'll know that that's a good thing to do if you want to get on in the world. And he said, I'm, I'm still not sure. And I said, Paul, I'll do anything. I'll pay you. <laughs> Paul went, hmm, how much? I said, $200. He goes, okay, you're ready. So thank you. On a more serious note, some of that is true, not all of it. Um, $200 part's true. Sorry. If you, you can pull me off stage now if you want, Paul. You've still, you've still got a chance. Paul was actually very generous. He said to me, you can choose whatever sermon you want to preach on, whatever text. And that's a bit like, well, saying that to seminary students, like saying to a kid, go into a candy store and have whatever you want. So thank you, Paul, for your generosity there picked a message that I think is foundational to the Christian walk. 
It's foundational to our lives. In fact, I've had a bit of joking, but now there's a serious part of the message. And that is, if you heed the main point of the psalm today, if you heed that message, you'll prosper in all you do. If you don't heed the main point of the message from the psalm, you'll perish. So it's a very important message that I'm giving today. And so before I start, let's, let's read the Bible. So I'm going to turn to Psalm 1. Thank you very much. If you turn to it in your Bibles, follow along with me, please. Or you can follow up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. If we could just bow our heads, I'll pray before we explain this teaching further. Father God, be with us now in this room. You know as I've sat under this text, Lord, it's convicted me in so many areas of my life. I'm not preaching as someone that has it all together, Lord. You know I need a Savior. You know this message is as much for me as it is for my friends here. But open our eyes, open our eyes, Lord, open our hearts, open our ears to receive what you have for us today. Lord, help me be a conduit for your word. Help me be faithful to your message. Let me not preach my own message, but what is contained in the psalm, Heavenly Father. In your name's sake, I pray. Amen. The psalm shows that there are two ways to live. Not three ways, not four ways, not one way where everyone's really happy, but two ways. The way of the wicked and the way of the right. The way of the wicked, and the way of the right. The psalmist also shows that there are two sources of information in life. Not three, not four, not five, not six, not one, but two sources of information. There's ungodly counsel, and there's godly counsel. The two ways to live wicked and righteous and two sources of information ungodly counsel ungodly advice and godly counsel godly advice 
let's look at what ungodly counsel is. Can we have a slide for this, please? Thank you. So it's talking about the blessed man. And it says what ungodly counsel is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Walking in the way, walking in the counsel of the wicked is pretty much taking advice from people that just don't respect God. In our modern age, it probably depends on what type of programs we watch, what conversations we have, what Facebook interactions we have, how we use our internet time. That can be a source of ungodly counsel for us. It might look like making three hours time for TV every night, but not three minutes time for reading the Bible. The second type of thing, it says, is nor stands in the way of sinners. I'm a little bit disappointed with that translation. It's bad in pretty much every Bible. Because that makes you think that you're kind of doing some heroics and stopping a sinner. Like a sinner's trying to come through, and you're going, No! Stand back! In the name of Jesus! Don't come through and sin! It doesn't mean that at all. It means that you're just acting like a sinner. And I'm not sure what that godly, ungodly counsel looks like. For me, it's kind of like an internal voice. Where I decide to build my kingdom and not God's kingdom. It's this kind of me, 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 me thing inside our heads. We can kind of react to that. I've, got, I've been blessed with three children. I've got a lovely daughter, Sienna, who looks extremely cute. She's two. She's the one running a mock earlier on. And she'll be running a mock at the end. She's just started having temper tantrums. And she looks very cute. But woe betide you if you don't give her what she wants. Woe betide the person that stands in the way of Sienna. Now, as cute as she looks, she has this like a temper tantrum. And that's the same with us. We can have those internal ones. Like, act like sinners. We think, me, me, me. We might feel aggrieved by something, angry about something. We think, I need to get my own way. We're not thinking, is this going to build someone else up? Is this going to build me up? Is this honoring to God? No, we're thinking, me, me, me. And in those situations, particularly if you're angry, you'll make some of the best speeches you have ever, ever made. And you'll regret every one of them. And finally, we have nor sits in the seats of scoffers. This is a much more overt form of ungodly counsel. This is pursuing, pursuing those that mock God. I'd like you to notice today that there's a progression as well. First we have walking in the counsel of the wicked. That kind of means kind of flirting with ungodly information, seeking after it now and then. I was actually going to use the National Enquirer within my sermon today but I've decided against it and when that magazine was just in my house the whole time I walked past it kept saying look at me look at me open me up see what the aliens are doing <laughs> sadly in my case the Bible's there as well and I'm, I'm often not walking past it thinking oh I'm just gonna read that And that's true isn't it for all of us but there's a progression so we walk in the counsel of the wicked then we become more established in it. We stand in the way of sinners. We're becoming much more rooted in pursuing ungodly counsel. And finally, we sit in the seat of scoffers. Sitting in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago meant you're assuming the position of a teacher. And the Christian landscape 
the evangelical one, even the Catholic landscape, is full of ministries, is full of leaders, is full of God's people who might as well have been teaching for the devil. You see, they have these horrendous falls from grace. And I think it's this slow progression, a bit like tooth decay. You don't know it's coming on. Before long, you've got terrible gum disease and tooth decay. It's similar with this ungodly counsel. I don't need to name names, but I'm sure some of you, even locally, have come from churches where these terrible things have happened. It makes you think, did this person know Jesus? Is this really a different way of life, following him? Do I know Jesus? What's happening? You see, those type of people really might as well have been sitting in the seat of scoffers. They might have been teaching for the devil himself. Now, that kind of warning is for those of us that have been in the faith a bit longer. Those of us that are more new in the faith, God knows it's hard to break old habits. God knows it takes time to change the ways you've, you've done things. And I'd just like to comfort you that if you're in that position, it's okay. God is moving you towards seeking the antidote to ungodly counsel, which is godly counsel. For those of us that have been in the faith a lot longer, maybe go to church, know all the right things to say, I just give a word of warning. Just be careful. Just think to yourselves, whereabouts on that progression are you? When I was studying for this text, I really was very convicted I was at the first stage. I'd much rather see how the Celtics, God bless them, were doing at the end of every night than necessarily reading the Bible. So the antidote to ungodly counsel is godly counsel. If you could have another slide, please. Keep this one up, thanks. So the antidote is, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When he uses the word law here, it kind of conjures up bad imagery in our head, doesn't it? Like someone with a stick that's going to beat us. What this actually means when it says law here is God's instruction, God's teaching. It pretty much means just the Bible. So the antidote to ungodly counsel, the antidote to going along this slippery slope, is the Bible. But his delight is in the Bible. And on his Bible, he meditates day and night. That word delight is quite a strong word. I'm not sure about you, but when I read the Bible, I don't go, Whee! Woo! Yes! Mmm! <laughs> but that's what the psalmist says we should be doing. We should be delighting in it. We should be pursuing it. We should be seeking it. Let me just unpack what delight means and how we can delight in the Bible. Um, I need another slide, please. I'm going to introduce you to my father now. My father's the guy on the left. He <laughs> He's not the nervous one in the middle. Um, he's the guy on the left, and he came to visit me last week. I show that there because my father's a very upstanding member of the community. Those of you that will know me and my family members often wonder how he managed to create me. He's very well respected in our local community. Um, there's a lot of work for charity, and here he is collecting an award from Prince Charles for some of the charity work he's done. 
And this photo, funnily enough, has pride of place in our house. It's just a small photo, but it's got a little silver frame around it. And when I said to my dad, can I show a photo of you? He goes, how about this one? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> but it does have pride of place in our house. And I like to tell myself that it has pride of place in Buckingham Palace too. I like to think that this is also got a silver frame around it. It's just at Prince Charles's bedside. He's able just to look over at nighttime, just touch the photo and remember the time he met my dad, Kevin Doyle. Anyway, you may be wondering where I'm going with this. Bear with me. My dad, as upstanding as he is, is the most playful person I've ever met. He's my best friend. He always has been and he always will be. And he's also the most competitive man I've ever met. He's one of the He's the ultimate competitive dad. He was an only child, and I was his only son. I've got two sisters. So all of my dad's pent-up need to compete as a child, even as an adult, just completely unloaded on me. Just even this week, he's visiting. We're waiting for my wife, Shelley, who isn't the fastest shopper. <laughs> we, were waiting. we were waiting in the car. Actually, she's at the library, and she's just saying, I'm just going to return a book or pick a book up. Me and my dad were sat in the car. Ten minutes later... We're kind of looking at each other. Hmm. My dad goes, I know what. Guess what number she comes out on. I say seven. Of people exiting the building, I said three. So one person comes out. My dad goes, uh, two, no, three. Oh, I've won. And he started celebrating already. And it was number eight. And even though he was wrong, Shelley was the eighth person to come out. He still goes, I've won. I've won. <laughs> that is how competitive my dad is. One of my, I've only known the Lord for seven years. Before then, my life was Pretty messy. But one of my first experiences of thinking about God was playing football, not soccer. Football, because you use your feet. was this American thing. It's probably American murder ball. I don't know why it's called football. Playing soccer or football with my dad. And it's not much you can do when there's two of you. But my dad would often, I'd be the goalkeeper, these tiny little pairs of gloves I'd have on, and I'd stand there nervously between two goalposts, kind of panicking. And my dad would be across the other side of the garden with, his, with a soccer ball or football there, with these big, huge boots on. They go, ready, Andrew? And I'd be standing there panicking. I'd literally, literally thinking, dear God, <laughs> dear God, please don't let this ball hit me. Please don't let this ball hit me. And my dad would wind up and he would literally go, boom, yes! I'm the winner! I'm the winner, and that makes you the loser. I'm going to tell Mum that I've beaten you at sports again. So when my dad first visited me in America, it's in February 2007, and there'd been a huge snowfall, and on campus at seminary, it's kind of like called the Holy Hill. There's a big hill there, and they've got all the faculty buildings, a chapel, and down in the unholy ground is all the students where we live in our accommodation. But there's this big sloping hill, and it was covered in snow. And then there'd been an ice storm as well. There's heavy ice all the way up this hill. And I come from England, and it's wet, it's not too cold, but we never get snow. This was a whole new opportunity for a competition with my dad. We looked at it, we looked at it and said, let's go sledding. So he went out, he very generously, he's in a different financial position than me, he very generously bought me a sled. I was really made up with the sled I bought. And then I saw the Olympic toboggan he then bought himself <laughs> to make sure he was going to win. I tell you, he need, I'm a bit heavier than him, so he needed all the help he could get. 
What has this got to do with godly counsel, you're probably wondering. What has this got to do with delighting in the law of the Lord? I'm wondering the same thing. I I wish I hadn't started this. (laughs) No. So there's this huge slope. I think we've got a slide, please. There's Shelley with Sienna. uh, No, Jessica. That's just solid ice. And as you out of the picture, it kind of comes up a hill up here. And then there's a path along the way. And I think there's another slide. There's just... (laughs) That's my daughter Jessica when she was... 18 months, she's having a time of her life there. (laughs) Daddy just shoved her down the hill. There you go, have some fun. (laughs) You'll enjoy this. Um, But you can see it's just just solid, solid ice. And so me and my dad, we went sledding for two hours, and we had just the best time. And do you know how how many races we had on the sleds? In two hours. Take a guess. Some numbers, please. Two. Just two. Because you had to walk up this ice slope. And we couldn't get up, ever. So my dad, this upstanding, respectable member of society, is trying to climb up. And we're kind of walking, holding our sleds, and he's trying to walk up. The next minute, he gets a bit of a slope, and you slip. And it's humiliating. You kind of slide down. You're You're trying to grab little pieces of grass to kind of stabilize yourself, but it just doesn't work. And sometimes, you get higher up, and my dad would actually slip and land on his back and go down like a turtle, upside down, whee, the whole way down the slope. And my dad was genuinely saying, do not tell anyone about this. (laughs) I waited three years. I couldn't hold it in any longer. (laughs) But you'd literally, when we got to the path, which is very rare, rare, we worked out the best way to do it was to walk like C-3PO in Star Wars. And he kind of just was kind of a really awkward walk. We worked out to walk like him with rust in his hips and his knees. We literally weren't moving. And you just trying to think, keep my foot on the ground the whole time, trying to get up this hill. And it was just humiliating. And it was res- but when you got to that path, when you got to that solid ground, it was good. You were pleased to be there. You're then going to have some fun. And that's what God's law is like. The Bible is solid ground. In ungodly counsel, you can... Go along a certain bit, you may bless, be blessed and prospered a little bit in following ungodly counsel, but you will slide back down. If you pursue friendships with people that always tell you what you want to hear, if you always listen to the me, 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 I can do what I want in my head voice, it is a slippery slope. Ask Tiger Woods. You know, he said, people have told him, you can do whatever you want. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But he's really hurt people. He admits that himself. He's hurt himself. He's hurt others. That's my caution to us today. If we pursue ungodly counsel, we will end up hurting ourselves and the people we love the most. Before I knew the Lord, I had addictions problems. I decided I could do what I wanted, when I wanted. And I ended up with cocaine habit, and I ended up with just a really broken personal life. But when I first heard the good news of the gospel that Jesus had died for my sins on the 11th of February 2003, it was just bliss. It was like my eyes had been opened. I could see what all this mess had been for. I'd just been living for myself and not living for God. And one verse or two verses just really, really just described my life for the first three months of my Christian walk. And it's the same psalmist that wrote Psalm 1 Listen to what he says. And this just was so true for me, suddenly realizing, ooh, maybe God 
it's a bit of a stupid thing to realize, but maybe God, who creates life, makes the earth, makes planets, makes stars, makes the solar system, whereas I make brownies, might be better able to understand how I should live my life than I think I do. And this is what I read, and it would comfort me all the time. So it's Psalm 19:7, verse 3 to 8. There's no slide for this one. The law or the instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. If you're just coming into a knowledge about who Jesus is, it's very obvious, it's very easy to delight in the Bible. But for those of us who have been in it longer time, we tend to forget what life without the Bible is like, what life is like without God's instruction. God wants us to have fun. He wants us to have pleasure. He invented it all. But it's within his boundaries. And we find out about those boundaries within his word. So the defining characteristic, as the psalmist says, verse 2, defining characteristic, and this is frightening, of a person of God is this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, or on his instruction, he meditates day and night. That's what makes a person of God. That what, that's what makes a Christian. It's to be the defining characteristic. And it's a hard verse here, isn't it? And on his law, he meditates day and night. I don't think that that means you think about it all morning, all day, and all through the night. It just means that it's central in your life. It means you're ready to be mastered by the Bible. I'm not up here as a seminary student with a lot more time and study time on my hands, lecturing people that has, have a lot less time on their hands. So there's a kind of curse that goes with being in a position of studying the Bible, and that is you forget to be mastered by it. I found in my time at seminary, I'd come to do my readings of the Bible, I'd read it, and I'd never go to be mastered by it. I don't know when it happened in my three and a half years at seminary, but it did happen. I'd read it and think, hmm, how can I teach from this? What's the main point? Great, good, there, done it. I move on. I wasn't just letting it soak over me. I wasn't taking time. I wasn't allowing it to be mastered by it. Now, this is a hard teaching, and I'm, I'm going to get into some applications later on and give some more hope in this message. But another way we can be mastered by the Bible is just to live by it. How we discipline our children, decisions we make at work, are they based on the biblical version of people and what's right or wrong, or based on what we think ourselves? So I've spoken so far that there are two ways to live. The wicked and the righteous. There's two sources of information. Two sources of information that we pursue. Do we pursue ungodly counsel or do we pursue godly counsel? I said as well that being people of the word defines who we are. And why should we do this? Verses 3 to 6 unpack that. It's because we're to be a blessing. I think there's another slide for this. So we've had two ways to live, two sources of information, and now we have two images. 
One of the images that the psalmist gives is of chaff. She says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And we all know what chaff is, don't we? It's the casing that covers corn. It's good for a short time. As the corn grows up and the ear comes up and there's grain inside, the casing protects it. That's the chaff. But it's only temporary. You know, if you pick the corn up, you, you rub it between your hands and you deliberately get rid of the chaff. You blow it away. It's good for a very short time, but ultimately it's good for nothing. Very, very temporary. And the psalmist is saying, if you spend your life pursuing ungodly counsel, you'll end up like chaff. The second image that we're given, there's a slide for this, is that of an evergreen tree that bears its fruit in its season. So here's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. For us, this might not be such a striking image in rain-soaked New England where there's lots of greenery, but think of yourself in the Middle East where the psalmist was writing, where it's dry and arid. An image of an evergreen tree was a profound symbol of vitality. And it's planted by streams of water. That's what nourishes it. It's planted by them. So by that stream of water, it can bear its fruit in season. There's a sense of permanence with a tree. Whereas chaff is temporary and good for nothing, the tree is kind of permanent and good for everything. It provides shelter, provides protection, shade, provides fruit, nourishment, sustenance. Psalmist has given us two very striking images. And this image is for those that pursue godly counsel. You see, the Bible, reading the Bible or living by the Bible, is what nourishes us, what grows us. Just back there, I have my six-month-old son, Jamie. And, yay, thank you, Jamie. The first thing we gave him, gave him was milk. I didn't give him bubble gum. And serious, you, if I want to nourish my son, we feed him milk. And if, as a person of the word, you want to be nourished and grow so you become more like Jesus, you need to read the Bible. Or you need to live by the Bible. My daughter, Jessica, I really need to get a new hobby. I've got three kids, sorry. Um, Paul, this is why you didn't let me speak my inappropriate humor. Here we go. My daughter Jessica loves to plant things. She constantly finds seeds and she wants me to plant them and then she just leaves them. So we have all these kind of half-grown plants everywhere. And a while ago she found some sweet corn and she planted it. Some little hard, hard casing kernel things. It looked like good for nothing. It looked like they were dead. You look at them and you think there's no value in them. She, well, we planted them and we watered them. And this is what they look like probably eight weeks later. By contrast... I took this one out five weeks ago. And if I kept it in here being watered, it would look like this. I took it out of its source of nourishment, and it looks like that. It's good for nothing. It's dead. And that's what happens if we stop reading the Bible. We won't be a blessing. We won't be like this big tree that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. We'll end up probably hurting people, hurting ourselves, not being good for much. 
I am fully aware. As I was studying for this passage, I was being convicted of how much a person of the word I wasn't. And it is a hard teaching, isn't it? Our delight must be in the law of the Lord. And on this law, we must meditate day and night. But thank God he knew it would be hard for us. Thank God I don't surprise him when I don't pursue his word the whole time. Thank God he knew that each of us here would probably need some help. There is one who fulfilled verse 2 perfectly. There is one who delighted in God's instruction. There is one who meditated it day and night. There is one who was so obedient to God's word, so mastered by it, that even though he was God, he didn't consider himself to be equal with God. He would follow and be obedient to God's word to death. I thank God this is a gospel preaching church because the gospel changes lives. The knowledge that Jesus died for our sins. The knowledge that everything we've done in the past, all the sins we've done today and all the sins we're going to commit in the future is fully forgiven. Thank God for that. Thank God that if we put our faith in Jesus, if we think, I'm not banking on myself going to church every week or being a great reader of the Bible is going to save me. It's what Jesus has already done that's going to save me. Thank God for that. Thank God that you can have everlasting life. But I'm going to go a different route on that today. Thank God for Jesus because he gave us the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples he'd do this. When he ascended to heaven, he gave us the Holy Spirit, which he described as, or his disciples, one greater than me will come. Greater than Jesus? Well, actually, it's the same as Jesus, but it's greater because it's available for all of us. We put our faith in Jesus. He lives inside us, helping us every step of the way. With the Holy Spirit, with Jesus, we will always imperfectly read the Bible, but with them, we will ever more perfectly be people of the Word. And if today, like me, you're thinking, oh, I'm so frustrated with my constant reticence about reading the Bible, don't worry, there's one to help you. From personal application, as much as I kind of try not to read this every day, I have never, ever regretted reading it. I want you to think, each of the times you've read the Bible, when you've decided to open it up, have you ever regretted it? Has it ever not built you up or not built others up? Has it ever not changed your perspective on things? Has it ever not comforted you? You'll never regret opening this up. We are not saved. Although the psalmist says we are defined by people being people of the word, we are not saved by being people of the word. We are saved by Jesus. And through Jesus, we can be more like people of the word. I want to share with you, the psalmist has given us two images. I want to share with you a third, more real life image. So can I have another slide, please? This is my first pastor, Mark Ashton. 
talked about like a tree and this being a, a person of the word. This is who most came to my mind when I thought of a person of the word. He, well, he was a sinner and he became a Christian while at Cambridge University. And in the heart of Cambridge, he just built, purely by teaching the word, he built a God-honoring church in the heart of academia, in the heart of a city where Stephen Hawking comes from, where Charles Darwin came from, where you'd think you get a lot of militant atheists, where my village church is a congregation of six. Just to give you an idea of what the Christian climate's like in England, this church probably had 1,200 people in it. That's unheard of. And it kept planting other churches. So from that church, they'd plant Bible-believing churches elsewhere. This is a man who was a man of God's word. He taught it faithfully each Sunday. He didn't go up there and give his ten, ten avenues to heaven, five ways to make your sex life better, two ways to get on with your kids. No, he just faithfully preached from the Bible each week. And lives were transformed. It's where I came to faith. It's where my wife Shelley came to faith. It's where so many of our friends came to faith, having had godless existences before. Just by his faithful teaching of the word. He taught it and he lived by it. This was a man that verse 3 was written about. In all that he does, he prospers. He prospered in life. He even prospered in cancer. See, 18 months ago, Mark was diagnosed with cancer, with gallbladder cancer. And it was a big shock to all of us. This man had a crucial role in my, my life and my wife's life. He was the one who I said the sinner's prayer with one time in church. This was the guy who, when I said I wanted to marry Shelley, he was just questioning me about it. This guy here is the one who baptized Jessica. I know that's bad now, Paul, don't worry. <laughs> it's an Anglican church <laughs> here he is dedicating Jessica <laughs> and he's the guy that wrote my reference for me to come to seminary that was probably not his finest moment but there was a man of the word and when he had cancer we were really just devastated he was this vital man full of life full of life suddenly have cancer it's a shock to us so he communicated with me and said, Paul, we'd I'm sorry, he said, Mark, get my pastors mixed up. Um, I said, Mark, we'd love to be praying for you. Can you send us email updates? So he did. And we thought we would be encouraging him through emails, but really he was encouraging us. Every single email he wrote was full of scripture. He was saying, I, now I've got cancer, it's the best time of my life. And it's shocking to say that, but he knew it was terminal. And he said, I believe in the Bible for life, for everlasting life. I also believe in it for death. He goes, now is the time to believe what I believe. I'm not going to stop believing it, and I'm going to meet the Lord. He knew where he was going. And he prospered in death too. I'm going to read a letter from his wife, Fiona. He died six weeks ago. It would seem cruel from a worldly perspective. Had three children. He'd just become a grandfather. He had a, a wife in the ministry with, and in the Church of England, you don't get paid very much at all to be a pastor. You get paid £18,000, which is probably $25,000. Everything's a lot more expensive as well. He'd never really been able to put any money aside. He'd never had a home. 
for his own. Or actually, in the last couple of years of life, they did get a home. But he was leaving children behind. He's leaving a wife behind. Had no means to support herself. It seemed cruel. But listen to how he prospered even in death. Listen to the benefit of being a man of the word was in his life and for his family that he left behind. I'm going to read with you the email from his wife Fiona that she sent to all of us that have been praying for Mark. And as I read it to you, I want you to think about the centrality of firstly scripture in this email. This wasn't, you know, you're suddenly facing death and you panic and you start to be a person of the word. It marked his whole life. I also want you to have comfort and hope that you hear about the centrality of Jesus. Because without Jesus, Mark would never have been a person of the word. Without Jesus, Mark would never have prospered in all that he did. Without Jesus, none of us can be people of the word. But we have Jesus and we can still imperfectly be better people of the word. I'll just read with you this email that she wrote. So just consider just the scripture in it, just the blessing he's been to his wife, that the strength she has in this. I'll read it for you. Dear friends, I know many of you have already heard that Mark died at 1.40 a.m., Saturday the 3rd of April, peacefully at home with his friends all around him. In the last hours of his life, members of the family and close friends shed verses and promises for the Bible. And although Mark was in and out of consciousness, he occasionally showed he was hearing them and was encouraged by them. Right up to the end, his faith and trust were so strong, which in turn has been such a strength to each of the family. Listen, this is why you people of the word, listen to this. Towards the end, when speech was restricted to the occasional words of word or two, he repeatedly said the words, soon home. What I'm just about to read as well perfectly sums up verse 6 and verse 5. Pretty much says, well, if you believe in Jesus or if you're a person of the word, you're going to paradise. Here, Mark is in eternity with Jesus whom he's loved and served since the 7th of February, 1968. As I sat by his bedside, it was amazing that on the day of his death, the 3rd of April, my Bible reading notes took me to Isaiah 53, to verses which among those used by Jonathan Fletcher to help Mark understand the gospel, turn to Christ and become a Christian on the 7th of February, 1968. Now just hear how much God's word is in this letter. Hear how much, by living as a person of the word, he's blessed his wife and his family. That in the midst of chaos, in the midst of deep, deep pain, there is still comfort. These are some of the verses that have been particularly encouraging to me over the last few days. Matthew 28.20 keeps coming to mind. It's not an obvious passage, but it's so helpful and comforting to have the promise of Jesus. That his presence is with us. His unending presence. Whatever we face, wherever we go, He's with us. He's with us to forgive us and guide and lead us. He's with us in joy and in sorrow, in the happiest and the saddest times. He's with us in time. He's with us in eternity too. Mark knew that, and we must also. 
We can look at death and say with Psalm 23, 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And he was with Mark in death. We can look at what lies after death and say that we will be with the Lord forever, 1 Thessalonians 4.12. And that certain hope was such a comfort and help to him. And for ourselves, it's comforting to know that he has promised never to leave or forsake us, Hebrews 13.5. So although we feel weak, we do know that Jesus, our Savior in heaven, is strong. And he's here to help us. We don't face any situation without Jesus which is why for Mark to face death really was face life. Because Jesus died and made it possible for him to have life on the 7th of February 1968 and to follow Jesus and have his presence from then on through life and through death to eternity where he is Jesus, with Jesus fully now, face to face. No more pain and discomfort. No more pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Now he's with Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Mark really did fix his eyes firmly on Jesus and believe that sure and certain hope that the best was yet to come. And the same was true of his final days and hours, which included difficult moments for him. I can't imagine how much worse it would have been for him had he not had that strong sense of head, where he was heading. Soon home. Mark was a man of the word. He had a huge impact on my life. Seven years ago, I had a cocaine problem. Fully and deeply in love with myself. Still a bit of a problem, but not so bad now. (laughs) Building my kingdom in every way that I could. But by Mark being a person of the word, by building a church based on the Bible, by being mastered by it, by living by it, He changed my life dramatically and my wife Shelley's life dramatically. At his Thanksgiving service, 1,500 people turned up. He even wrote a book called Soon Home in the last two months of his life to encourage people as they face death. This is a man that prospers or did prosper in all that he did. Sometimes you might think that believing in God guarantees you health and wealth. Certainly, God loves to bless his children. But more than blessing us on earth now, he loves to bless us in eternity. So when we don't have health and when we don't have wealth, we will still prosper in all that we do, as Mark did. It's my encouragement to you today, my exhortation to you, is to be people of the word. You'll bless your families. You'll bless your loved ones. You'll be a blessing to others. You'll build people up. You'll build yourself up and be more like Jesus. I'm now just going to move through to some application. God knows it's not a strong point for me. Imagining what it's like to be a mum or a, a father of teenage people or even what it's like to be a teenager as a Christian because I never was. So I phoned some people up in the congregation just to ask them what works for you to be people of the word. And it's very, very helpful conversations. It's very comforting for me personally because 
Everyone said it's extremely hard. So I didn't feel so bad about myself. If you're a new believer, Eddie, can you stand up, please? Come on. Let's say hello to Eddie, everyone. Give him a little clap. You can stand up as well, Jeff. <laughs> Keep standing, Eddie. Um, if you're a new believer, you can read the word together. Eddie, I think you read the daily bread, don't you? Let's see what that looks like. Thank you. It's a big, it's a big version. Every morning, thank you, Eddie. Every morning, Eddie gets together with our friends, some of our friends from Alpha and Beta classes who are getting to know the Lord, and they read our daily bread together. And I've seen these people each week when I see them in our studies just being deeply, deeply nourished. They've been a great blessing to me just to see God's work in their life. It's almost like a hard kernel of corn that's been hurt by life. But come to life again, start to hope again, start to trust again start to be a blessing to themselves and others. What God's love does, that's what God's word does. If you're a teenager, I also know it's hard to read the Bible. I never was one. If I was a teenager, I'm a Christian teenager, I'd have probably been the coward that wouldn't have read the Bible in front of people. If it's if it's hard for you to read the Bible at school or wherever you are in public, just try and do it first thing in the morning. Just something simple. It doesn't have to be a long, huge study. Just something simple. Every day you're just getting that nourishment because it feeds us. If you're a dad, I pity you because I'm a dad as well. As, as joyous as it is having children, in this day and age you have to juggle so many different balls. And if you're anything like me, you drop half of them. And the one I most often drop tends to be Bible reading every day. And I regret that. But there's things that we can do to make it easier for us to read the Bible every day. If we travel to work, we can have a Bible CD in the car. Listen to it. It doesn't have to be some, again, it doesn't have to be some huge study. It just has to be being mastered by the Word. Just letting it drift and soak over us. Letting it water us. Letting it nourish us. If you're a mum, it is really hard. The most fruitful time I had on the phone, the most encouraging and edifying time I had on the phone was to different mums. And some of the gems of wisdom that they gave me for being people of the word is it may not ever look like a quiet time again. It may not look like sitting down as you did maybe as a teenager, a single person, just thinking, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and some time with the Lord and slowly read the Bible. It's going to be chaos every day. One mom was so encouraging me, she spoke to me about how she was cooking and trying to read something from the Bible to think, how can I discipline my child lovingly and point to them that this is the way he should follow. That's what being a person of the Word is. It doesn't necessarily look like doing a quiet devotion every day. It looks just like living by the Bible. If you homeschool... It might look like just meditating, keeping in your head and your busyness during the day. It just might look like meditating on a couple of the verses you've done in your homeschool curriculum. That is being a person of the Word. One thing I was very convicted by that I don't do enough, and I want to make that different from here on in, is family Bible time. My wife Shelley and I, we have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, 
and a six-month-old. If I wanted to, and I never do, if I wanted to get up early and read the Bible, the second I open it, they're going to wake up. And if I try and read the Bible for myself in bed at night, the second I, my head hits a pillow, I'm in a coma. It's really, really hard. But what you can do is family Bible reading. This is something I learned from people that I was on the phone with. Just read the Bible at a meal when everyone sat down. It doesn't have to be much, but just read a bit together. Discuss it. That's what being people of the Word looks like. It looks like coming to church, learning from the Bible as a community. It looks like pursuing friendships with people that love God. By all means, it looks like pursuing friendships with people that don't know God too. And when you do that, there will always be some contamination. My friends delight in putting inappropriate stuff on my Facebook page. It gives them huge joy, my non-believing friends, just to put something saucy on there. So my church friends can see it, and I have to get on there quickly to delete it. But that contamination is worth it, because I want them to know Jesus. Jesus knew it was worth it. He still he pursued godly counsel, but he also pursued unbelievers. He was willing to dine with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. He was willing for the contamination where people said, oh, look, there's a drunkard, there's a sinner. So I'm saying pursue godly counsel. I'm not saying let's live separate lives. I'm saying let's pursue godly counsel and let's pursue non-believers too. Well, thank you very much. I'm just going to close with prayer. If we bow our heads, Lord God, help us to be people of the Word. In the name of Jesus, may everyone in here ever more perfectly today be a person of the Word. Lord, you know that it's preposterous for us to save ourselves, for us to try and be people of the Word, for us to be a blessing to others without your help. We might as well throw a glass of water up in the air and try and extinguish the sun. But Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may you come into each of our hearts and evermore help us to be people of the Word. As we leave here today, Father, just help us examine ourselves. Are we really doing all we can to be a person of the Word? For so many, that is yes. For so many, it may feel imperfect to them. It may not feel like a quiet time. But it is enough, Lord. For those of us where it's not enough, show us how we can be more like people of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you are always with us. We prosper in all that we do, in life and in death. Amen.